Hi, Simon Hill here. Enjoy our podcast. If you'd like to help us keep delivering the sort of quality football chat you want, then you can show your support by making a donation. Big or small, however much you can afford, we appreciate all your help and every cent will be ploughed back into improving production. Thanks in advance from all of us at Shim, Spider and so much more. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, just a big thank you to all our listeners and our downloaders. So you continue to listen to our podcast in great numbers. And don't forget, we're now on YouTube as well. So please hit the subscribe button on that and continue uh, to follow us on all our social channels at Shimmuch. We're also really appreciating your feedback via Apple Podcasts. Uh, some really nice reviews written, so if you want to add something to that, then please do so. And again, thank you so much for your support. We really appreciate it. It's Craig Moore. What a piece. Beautifully struck home by Craig Moore, and the Australian supporters go wild in Stuttgart. Why not? You're with Shim, Spider, and so much more. Take it away, fellas. Yes, hello again. Welcome along for another dose of Shim, Spider, and so much more. Episode 8 is our post-grand final edition, so we've got lots to get through. Our special guest later on is the new FFA technical consultant, Ron Smith. We've got another $100 meal voucher to give away, courtesy of the Outback Steakhouse. And, of course, we'll relive Sunday's events at Bankwest Stadium. We'll do it all in the company of Zelko Kalatz, a.k.a. Spider, who had a good weekend on the Nag Spider. Very good. Thank you, Kieran. Giddy up, Spides. Giddy up. Kieran, the mail was good. <laughs> and another man who loves to take a punt, Craig Moore, is with us via Moore Towers in Brisbane. How are you, Maury? Mate, doing all right. I'm doing all right. Like a little bit, I'm going to say a little bit fragile today. Three beers yesterday watching the, the grand final, Simon, and um, I'm definitely getting old. I'm waking up a little bit dusty. Only three and you're getting the hangover. Jeez, you're a cheap drunk, Maury. Oh, mate, terrible. I used to be so much better. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's get into it then. Time for Simon Says. Simon Says. So in the week when the A-League closed its doors for another season and we look ahead to what next year might have its store, I wanted to talk a little bit about the Central Coast Mariners. Yes, the Mariners finished bottom again. And yes, Mike Charlesworth wants to sell his license. Their future is up in the air. And there is some talk that Canberra, which wants to join the competition, could buy the license and relocate the team. Now, I'm all for the nation's capital having a side in the A-League. It's long overdue. They appear to have solid investment. 
and they were probably a little bit unfortunate to lose out in the last round of expansion. We're probably one of the few nations in the world that has no team in its own capital, but does have one from another country. I, for one, would welcome their inclusion, but not at the expense of a team that has firm roots in the A-League. It might only be 15 years, but if we are to build history and generational support, then ripping clubs up and starting afresh elsewhere is not the way to do it, in my opinion. David Harris MP wrote an open letter to the people of the Central Coast a couple of weeks ago, imploring them to support a club he believes the region has taken for granted. He underlines their worth to the area, their track record of producing Socceroos, their title win in 2013, their feats in spreading the name of the coast into Asia and beyond. I applaud him for bringing this issue to the forefront of people's minds. If the Mariners are to fold, then what use is the picturesque stadium to the community bar one or two rugby league games per year? What happens to their supporters? The production line of Socceroos such as Matt Ryan, Miller Yedinak, Trent Sainsbury, the Source Bottles, Marvin. Are they to go the same way as North Queensland Fury and Gold Coast United and be consigned to the football scrap heap? Talk about alienating your own customer base. I understand football is a business and this is a league made up of franchises. Perhaps it's time we change that model. If the Mariners are to drop out of the A-League, it should be because of their poor sporting performance on the pitch and they should be relegated into a second division whenever that might ever eventuate, but not because suits decide they're no longer worthy of their spot. The Mariners have become a problem because their owner can no longer invest, but already a call has gone out for expressions of interest to form a supporters trust to try and provide the investment vehicle required to support the current club. In my opinion, that should be encouraged, supported, and they should be given every chance to succeed. Perhaps we could have a mixed model of private ownership and community-based ownership to protect the club. Bring in Canberra by all means. Make them the 13th A-League club. And by the way, whilst we're about it, let's have the 14th ready to go ASAP as well so we can get on with having a proper home-and-away 26-round season. Expand the A-League. Don't replace the existing clubs because all that does, in my opinion, is further divide a football community that's already divided enough. Spider and Maury, your thoughts? Well, there you go. There's something that we've been speaking about on the pod for a long, long time, eight episodes, and we're going to continue to speak about it because we know we need more teams, not less teams. And I agree totally. I think Central Coast Mariners is a heart and soul of, uh, of the coast, and they need to be there. Let's not relocate them. Let's get the right clubs in and follow suit and just keep developing the league and second division, in we come. Agree, uh, Spider. Look, for me, the, the Mariners, look, if the Mariners are going to be uh, long-term in terms of the A-League, it, it must be in Gosford. And there's this, this relo- relocation sort of stuff for me, I don't think can happen. Um, look, I, I'm, I'm really quite keen to hear a little bit more about this supporter trust model because I believe outside, you know, Sydney and Melbourne, it's probably a model that um, could work at, you know, your Brisbane's, your, your Jets, your Perth Glories, fans investing money like the 50 plus one rule in, in Germany and would provide some good funds and, and, and financial backing for these clubs to operate, I think, in a far better ma- manner and, and not so heavily reliant on broadcast. And not so heavily reliant on one individual benefactor as well. Uh, it's time we uh, got our expansion plans in order rather than the current ad hoc system. All right, so on to on-field topics. 
and our post-grand final review. Hard Talk. Yeah, Hard Talk is brought to you in association with StreamGate, live streaming since 2008, specializing in custom-built page streaming, pay-per-view, complete virtual events, and multilingual streaming. Their virtual room conferences can service multiple destinations simultaneously and social media channels servicing clients Australia-wide. Go to streamgate.co or find them on Instagram. Let's start off, boys, uh, where we should start off, and that's with the grand final. The 15th in the A-League era, uh, Sydney against Melbourne City. Sydney, a record fifth National League title. What did you make of it all? Maury, you start us off. Yeah, look, I mean, in the end, I think Sydney FC were, were deserved uh, winners. And, you know, the fifth National League title, I think, is, um, you know, it, it's an enormous effort. An enormous effort for, for Steve Corico has done a, a fantastic job. Melbourne City started off the, the better for me. They were the, the, the better team. Um, started off really, really bright in the match. But the longer it went, Simon, I always felt that the experience of Sydney FC uh, was going to uh, prove to be the difference. In the end, that, that, that was the case. Uh, but I thought, look, I thought it was a good contest um, and I really enjoyed the game. Unfortunately, there were a couple of incidents that we'll, we'll lead into um, that, that are talking points within this match. Yeah, I agree, Maury. I, I thought it was a fantastic match. Considering it was a grand final, it was two very, very good sides. I think they were, they, uh, Melbourne City were unlucky. I thought they were brave. I thought Melbourne City in the semi-final against Western United weren't so brave. I thought in the grand final they were brave and they played and they really went out to win that match. Uh, but yeah. again, I think the experience of Sydney FC and mate Bimby, what a great job he's done. Two years in charge, two grand finals, uh, mate, fantastic. And it just shows that Sydney is the leading club in the A-League. Let's talk about uh, the elephant in the room, guys. The goal that was ruled out by VAR for offsides. Lockie Wales mm. judged to uh, have been impeding the view of Andrew Redmayne. Is that the right decision for you, Maury? But when I was watching it, Simon, I, I, I was like, nah, please, that, that, just let that stand. That, that's, a, that's a goal. Um, I'm quite happy with it being given a goal, but obviously having the benefit of the replays, not only was, was Lockie Wales uh, blocking the side of Redmayne, I think King, the Sydney FC defender, uh, was also blocking, but Lockie Wales was in an offside position, so I think it was the right call in the end. You know what was funny about that, Maury, for me, was that being a goalkeeper, yeah, any goal we cop, we always want to blame someone else. So, like, Redders should have been up, jumping up and down once he copped the goal to actually say he, wasn't. he was offside. He wasn't. So, for me, it was clear as day that Redders had full side of the ball. But, yeah. being... It's, it's an offside. I mean, at the end of the day, Lockie's standing in his, in his way. He's obstructing. You, ha- you have to give offside. Well, I, I think... Oh, sorry, Simon, before you uh, start again there. But I think without VAR, and I'm a big fan to, to not have VAR, but that's, a, that's another discussion, which we've uh, had many a times. Melbourne City win the game spides. Yeah, it would have been given. That, that, that goal's given. Yep, um, obviously, the, pe- the penalty decision, uh, which I actually thought was a penalty on Lafondre, I know that he might have paused and waited for contact, but for me, he was clipped. But live, Chris Beat didn't give the penalty. So um, without VAR, Melbourne City would have won this match. I Interesting. Agree. I agree. Um, Ryan Grant, again, uh, the match winner. Uh, he scored in the grand final, of course, three years ago against Melbourne Victory, the equaliser on that occasion. Uh, this time, it proved uh, to be the winner. Another 
all action performance from uh, Ryan Grant at right fullback. And that, that, those runs late into the box have become sort of his trademark, haven't they? It's, it's fantastic. And you know what? The satisfaction for Steve Corica and Robbie Stanton to obviously see a goal scored like that. And that, that's a clear pattern play. That is something Sydney do over and over and over again. And to actually think they're, they're brave enough it was a great ball by Bratton. Great timing of his run yeah. by Ryan Grant. To, to score a goal like that on grand final day is fantastic. And, I mean, he, he was full of energy, wasn't he, Ryan Green? Yeah. The mullet obviously goes goes good as well. So he's known for, a, for not only the mullet, but a nice chest finish. Um, but, yeah, I think, Spider, as you touch on, I think just the experience that, that, that Sydney FC had as the game wore on, your Brattons. I thought Retre done well. Yep. Um, you know, then you've got Ninkovic and Lafondre and, and Barbarusas that put in a shift. Um, Ryan Grant, obviously, we know the quality and, and his endless amount of energy. And, and it's very important because he's a great outlet for Sydney FC and he got his reward. I did like the uh, headline in the Sydney Morning Herald this morning said, simply the chest. Brilliant. Yep, nice. Um, <laughs> in the wake of uh, the grand final, obviously now thoughts turn towards uh, next season. It, it, we'll talk about the two clubs specifically and then we'll talk more generally about what the next season looks like for the A-League. Uh, a lot of talk that Adam LaFondra is, is about to leave Sydney FC. That would leave a massive hole. Uh, some talk mm. that Bobo might even return. Uh, not happening. Interesting. Not happening, Maury. You've got inside info. Not, right? not, well, Twitter sometimes is useful. I've seen a couple of days ago they'd actually gone back to Brazil. There you go. There you go. Well, this is the funny thing, right? So, so the season's finished now. So we're in, now we've got September, October, November, December, January, February, March. We've got... Seven months of no football. It's it's starting in March, is it? Well, I don't know. February. It's I can't see it starting before then. It's almost impossible to start before then. So that's a long time uh, to play no football. So a lot of these players that are European or overseas based, you would think they would want to go back to Europe and play ASAP. Uh, but with Lafondre, you're talking about potentially India because there will be better money on on, on offer spides. Uh, but one thing is for certain that. Yes, he'll be a he'll be a Mr. Sydney FC, but Steve Corker has shown that in terms of recruitment, he's he's across that and he's done a very good job. And Sydney FC being one of the biggest clubs, if not the biggest, they will they will be in a, a good position to be able to attract, I think, a, again, a decent striker. Um, and I'm sure that, that you know that'll be a player that can come in and do a good job for Sydney FC again next season. But the break, yeah, I mean, we're still waiting on a decision. Uh, JJ came out recently and said that. Most likely 2021 restart, um, but not clear on actual date. And that can be a little bit difficult for the clubs, obviously, in terms of their, their recruitment and their planning. Maury, you've got to give a lot of credit to Sydney FC. And I, I don't think this is luck because they are one of the teams that always spends on marquees and visa players and always seem to get it right. And the success mm. comes to those clubs who do their homework and actually are prepared to spend. Because if you have a look, the success that they have is always with the strikers. They do actually spend in excess. I know we had Yanko was very successful. Then they had Bobo, very successful. Now yeah. they've had Lafondra. So, you know, if you're brave enough to spend the money to get success here in Australia, Sydney FC deserve all the credit they get. Uh, Melbourne City. Yeah, but they, sorry, go on, Maury. The important thing is, though, Spides, is, is yes, they have the money but they've got their recruitment correct. Sure have. Um, Melbourne City had a good season, uh, just fell short in the grand final. Uh, there again is talk that Eric Mombert may return to France. I think Troyes is the club that he's, he's been linked with. 
uh, speculation that Paddy Kisnorbo uh, might take over. Really, if you Melbourne City, after the season that they've had, they reached a cup final, they reached a grand final, all right, they didn't get the, uh, the chocolates in the end. But you try to keep Montbert, don't you? Oh, you would, you would have loved to have tried to keep him. Uh, look, they're a bit of Jan and Novotna at the moment, aren't they? They keep choking at that, <laughs> at, at that final hurdle. But I, I think they were fantastic this year. I really do. Uh, I feel for Melbourne City. I think Mombe has come in and done a fantastic job. Paddy Kuznorbo knows the club inside out. And yeah. we can have a look at all the, the managers that are getting appointed around the A-League for next year. It probably is a great opportunity for Paddy Kuznorbo to take over if Mombe doesn't mm-hmm. come, come back. You got your tip wrong, Spider. I know. I know. I feel sorry for him because I, I thought they were fantastic all year. And as Maury said, Delbridge's goal goes in. I think Melbourne City do win the goal game. All right. So let's look ahead more generally to next season. We've said that uh, we don't really know when the start is going to be. It could be December. It could be January. It could be February. It could be March. Who knows? Uh, what happens to the clubs with such a long break? I mean, do essentially they go into hibernation? How, how do they continue to pay their staff? With uh, with very little income. Yeah, no, good good question, uh, Simon. I mean, like it says, we're still uncertain about the start date. The actual salary cap we're hearing around about two point one million for for next season. Um, the the delay is is not is not ideal, uh, and I think probably the the pushback to next year with um, you know hopefully a situation where fans um, can flow into to stadiums and things be kind of as normal as they can this this COVID uh, time I think is is going to be important for the clubs for their you know for their financial um, opportunities that can can springboard off the back of that um, players will get time off they'll, they'll normally would get would get four to five weeks off um, now it's going to be about four then, or five months <laughs> yeah I, I know but we normally have um, the A-League has always normally had a, a three to four month pre-season which is it's hellish uh, it's very very long and especially when you tap into to the European uh, type of players Simon for example when we were at Brisbane Raw you try to bring them as late as possible because they're only used to a maximum maximum five week pre-season spider yep yep yeah, it's, it's difficult, Maury. Uh, and again, we, we laugh about the timelines, but without those, the clubs are actually stuck, aren't they? Because you don't know yep. when to start pre-season. The other thing is, Maury, when do you sign these foreign players in regards to the salary cap? So the later you sign them, the, the easier it is to fit into their salary cap as well. So it, it could be one of those where there could be a lot of movement done in January where players are going to go back to Europe and play overseas and look to sign these players in January, February, so it doesn't cost them as much. Let's uh, move on from uh, that more general discussion and talk uh, a few specifics. In particular, Perth Glory, a big rumour that Tony Popovich is going to head overseas and coach in Greece for Azanti. Diego Castro, rumoured to have refused to play and had a big bust up with the club. If both those uh, characters' personalities leave Perth Glory, they're massive shoes to fill, both in terms of uh, the coaching department and on the pitch as well, Maury. Yeah, no, look, uh, I mean, Tony Popovich is, is an excellent coach and, and, and brings, I think, a huge amount of knowledge um, and experience to any football club. Where If Perth Glory were, and it looks highly likely that, you know, Popper is going, going to Greece and wish him all the best in, in, in that journey. Um, Castro, yeah, heard the same thing in terms of uh, really disappointed the way things played out um, during COVID. Um, 
does he stay? It's, for me, uh, highly unlikely. And what I will say, though, is potentially around about, you know, you've still got Jacob Burns, who's, who's brought stability to that football club as a football director. Um, good operator, knows what he's doing there. Uh, Hayden Fox, I've not heard any rumours about Hayden Fox uh, going with a, a Tony Popovich, for example. So Foxy, I think, is also now well-primed to be able to step into uh, that role at Perth Glory. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's cer- certainly uh, challenging times, but I still think that Perth Glory, um, should they continue to have the backing of, of Tony Sage, um, should be okay. All right. Uh, news this week that uh, funding has been promised by the Victorian government for this uh, much mooted home of the Matildas, which uh, is fantastic if it uh, eventuates. It looks as though it's going to. A decent chunk of money has been promised. Um, we need these homes of football around the country. And it seems as though the game is finally starting to get its act together with regards to uh, putting pressure and lobbying governments to get the money that we need. Yeah, no, I, I think it's fantastic. Uh, look, the Women's World Cup is going to make a big change to what we can push for. And the governments, I think, will realise how big it is. So they will help us. So now we, you know, what's the old saying? Strike while the iron's hot. And now it's hot. Yeah. It's boiling. So we've got to go after everything that we want for the future now. Yeah, no, and it's an interesting one, Spides. Yeah? Like, virtually now, with majority of our girls and our Matildas playing their football in Europe, um, we, we've you know, got the opportunity potentially for this home of football for the Matildas. But as you said, Simon, any home of football, for me, brings huge commercial opportunity. Uh, and I think that it's definitely... Um, moving in the right direction. I think it's a fantastic um, scenario for Australian football. Okay, a couple of uh, Twitter questions to round off this particular segment. One from Ben Archer. Uh, He asks, given the A-League players are being asked to take another pay cut next season, uh, I'm pretty sure they will, is there a danger of the competition becoming semi-pro again? Well, I I don't think it'll go semi-pro. I still think the salary cap will be big enough to to subsidise these guys to be professional. But it's it's actually getting scary at the moment uh, with the way things are, are panning out. Yeah, and I, I think, Spides, look, like I said, we know that the A-League is, is, is having to reset. Uh, and again, we don't need to harp on about the importance of the second division, but I think the excitement of a second division will kind of ease the pain a little bit because I think we are going to see a downside with the A-League. I, I, really, I really do believe leave that um semi-professional now look we don't want to see it go back to semi-professional but finances are going to be cut back but i think once the second division the national second division which i believe they're looking at 2022 i would love to see it in 2021 because i think that it just brings excitement to the game and gives you a better opportunity to get at the table and to negotiate negotiate broadcasting rights digital uh, streaming uh, rights whatever it is i think it's a far exciting a bigger project with the second division attached to it. And just on that second division, uh, the AAFC, the uh, umbrella body that represents all the MPL clubs, uh, announced last week the formation of a 25-club advisory group. They will now go away and hold discussions and there will be a final report uh, submitted to the FFA, I assume, by November 2020. So still plenty of time if they were to 
try and get that second division up and running. If we're going to start as late as February, March next year, for it to be in for next season. We'll wait and see what happens with that one. Another Twitter question from A-League Couch Critic. This one sort of goes the other way, and I'm not sure this is going to eventuate next season, but let's talk uh, theoretically here. If the salary cap goes, asks A-League Couch Critic, will it be a two-horse race in the A-League and ruin the competition? What was Maury's experience of that when he was in Scotland and it was just Celtic and Rangers going for the trophies most of the time? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good question, that. Look, the, the, for me, the salary cap in Australia is not a leveller because teams do spend more outside the cap, Sydney FCs and Melbourne Cities and the likes. Look, Rangers Celtic, obviously, two-horse race in Scotland the way it was, but what we used to always say, Simon, was um, the season wasn't won um, with those, those old firm matches, those Rangers Celtic matches. You're playing against the, the other teams that actually make a contribution to the competition every time they play against a Rangers or a Celtic. It's a cup final for them. And, and it's about picking up points against those teams because I tell you what, they're right up for it. They're kicking absolute lumps out of you. Um, <laughs> but, but I understand in terms of, uh, you know, I mean, you look at Barcelona, Real Madrid, they dominate. I mean, it happens in, in, in other countries. And it probably at some stage will, and it already does happen here in Australia when you look at the history of the A-League, look at the teams that have won it. Who are, who are the two clubs then? Sydney and Melbourne City? I would have thought there was four. Yeah. I, I would have thought Melbourne City, obviously, uh, Sydney FC, obviously, Victory. Yeah. Man, Victory can compete with anyone if they want to spend. Yeah. Uh, and Wanderers, yeah, yeah. no problem. So I, I think it's a four-team competition for sure. And look, you know, we say four teams, but I've spoken to Roods quite a bit. Western United, their pockets are fuller. They're willing to spend yeah. on what they're doing down there. So I, I don't think it's just a two-horse race. And the other thing there is that with the A-League final system, you have a top six which is your equalisation measure. Correct. Because you can finish sixth and theoretically still win the competition. All right, it's much more difficult to do so. But if you're in the top six, you've got that opportunity. And uh, that's a a race, a battle in itself, of course. Anyway, we'll see how that pans out. Uh, Thanks for your questions, guys. Uh, We're going to move away from the local scene and head overseas next. London calling. Yes, London calling this week. It was Wembley Stadium calling Arsenal and Liverpool for the uh, annual curtain raiser to the new Premier League campaign, the FA Community Shield. And uh, Arsenal came out on top. Spider, I know you stayed up late, probably with a couple of beers, watching this one. And uh, Pierre-Ebrick Aubameyang again proving his worth to the Gunners. Yeah, the Jaeger Red Bull was getting a workout Saturday (laughs) night to keep me up. (laughs) But let me tell you, I thought it was a cracking match, huh? considering uh, both teams have just started. I thought it was a cracking match. Uh, ben Young scored a fantastic goal. Uh, Liverpool played this high line, Maury. It was scary yeah. how, how high they were playing. And considering that Arsenal... They've been watching quick. Bayern Munich, haven't they? Oh, yeah, I think so, yeah. <laughs> and uh, Arsenal got in behind. But both, both, sides, both sides will be very competitive this year. Uh, Liverpool looked to me like a team that was successful last year and the players are just short of that 5% to continue going on. But I'm sure it's uh, the machinery is just getting worked up. And uh, I think Klopp will put that to, to bed very quickly. And when the EPL starts, I think they'll be a very exciting team to watch once again. Yeah, this, is, this was a... Look, it's a preparation match. I know there's a trophy at stake, but this is basically preparation. Uh, Arteta continues to impress. Uh, at Arsenal, and I think I think they've got a uh, an exciting uh, season ahead. I, I do believe that Liverpool 
as you said, Spides, they're, they're a machine. Look, they'll get back to, to ticking over as Liverpool do. Um, I still think that they'll be the team to, to beat this season in the Premiership. Um, this was preparation for them. Maury, you said a couple of weeks ago that uh, you felt Arsenal were possibly a couple of players short of being a genuine mm-hmm. challenger. And one of those positions you said was a, was a centre-back. You seen anything to, that changed your mind over the weekend? What, what I have seen in Arsenal squad is they've only got nine centre-backs. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so they've got, look, they've got plenty on their, their roster, Simon. But, you know, they, I still think they need um, a, dominant, a dominant figure that is a, is a 7 out of 10 every single week and is a good leader. I also probably feel that in the middle of the park, in midfield, uh, Spider, I don't know what your thoughts are there, but somebody that can, can, can really control a game and sort of like just bring a calmness uh, to the team, I think if they can add a, pos- a position there, then I think that they're potentially a, a real opportunity to, to compete at a higher level next season. Yeah, uh, that costs money. As we all know, Arsenal have never been a team that go out and spend that kind of money. So it's difficult, but... They, they play a good brand of football. Uh, what, is, what is a success for Arsenal? Is it to finish in the top four next year? I don't know. But I think they'll, they'll be much more competitive than they were this year. Well, one player who didn't cost any money was Thiago Silva, who's left Paris mm-hmm. Saint-Germain. I'm not sure he wanted to, to be fair, but he's gone. He signed mm-hmm. a free transfer, one-year deal for Chelsea. He's 35. Does yes. his, does his uh, style of play and, and his age suits the, the hurly-burly of the Premier League, Maury? I tell you what, it's going to be a he's going to be a challenge, but Thiago Silva is a is a high class player, uh, Simon, and uh, I'm sure he I'm sure he can meet that challenge. But as we spoke about uh, Upamecano Upa at at Leipzig, it's kind of like I'm, I'm not sure, yeah, whether he's going to be suited to the Premier League that um, that hurly burly style of football, that end to end pace, power, um, but to pick him up on a free. Uh, I mean, oh, fair play to Chelsea because at 35 years of age, I mean, I know what it's like when clubs are looking to recruit. Normally, you mention a player over 30 years old and they go, no thanks. Mm-hmm. I always remember that you used the example of, you remember Jorginho when he signed for, for Chelsea? Wonderful mm-hmm. player. Rolls-Royce of a midfielder, but uh, in his yeah. early games in the Premier League, it just passed him by. It was so quick. It was like, he was almost like a deer in the headlights, wasn't he? He couldn't deal with the pace of it. But again, yeah. you've got to look at uh, the players that Lampard's recruiting. He's in, he's, in, he's in European competitions as well next year. So he knows he needs, a, he needs a roster. He needs players for the Premier League and he needs players for the Champions League. So look, uh, I think it's a fantastic signing. He was an ex-teammate of mine, so I actually know how good he is as a player. I think he'll be suited. I think he'll do a great job at Chelsea. And, and, you, and you touch on their recruitment spides. Um, Chilwell, Ziyech, Timo Werner. Um, that's $131 million. They're also linked to, to Havertz at Leverkusen uh, for $90 million. So when there seems to be no money in the game, Chelsea are finding plenty, which means <laughs> that they want to have a, a red-hot crack this season. Telephone numbers. Talking of which... It would need a 700 million euro release payments to get Leo Messi yeah. uh, on your books or certainly off Barcelona's books. Uh, he didn't appear for pre-season training or the medical with Barca with the rest of the players um, over the weekend. Uh, La Liga have come out and said they support Barcelona in this legal row. Where's mm. this all going to end? Is this going to be a lengthy court battle? And, and does that mean that mm. Messi basically 
sits out for a couple of months and, and does nothing. It's, it seems to be heading for this impasse and, and both sides are adamant that they are correct. He could be going on JobKeeper, Maury. <laughs> oh, mate. Yeah, he'd be all right, though. <laughs> um, <laughs> mate, I don't know. I was interested. I was listening to uh, to talk sport. I was listening to Simon Jordan speak a little bit about this um, overnight. And look, there were there was a clause in Messi's contract that had to be um, exercised on the tenth of June mm. that would allow him to potentially get out for free. Obviously, that's not happened. So, I mean, contractually, Barcelona are in the strong position. Um, but you know, Leo Messi, or Lionel Messi, the the, the best player in the world. Um, whether he stays or goes, I, st- I still don't know. I think when you have a player at that level that decides that he does not want to be at the football club, then you've got to try and find a solution that, that, that's going to work for both parties. Um, hopefully it doesn't drag out because we want to think of uh, Barcelona as a fantastic football club and, and Lionel Messi as one of the greatest players. Let's see how it unpl- uh, unfolds. Rumour is Pep Guardiola is in Spain at the moment. I wonder if he's in Barcelona and I wonder if he's at a coffee with, uh, with Leo Messi. Yeah, but 700 million. How do you buy out a footballer for 700 million? Mate, that's insane, Maury. What, what is going on here? Might, might blow out the financial fair play regulations oh. as well. <laughs> <laughs> but, but even as a free spice, even as a free, you're paying him. It's 100 million a year. Yeah, it's crazy. Do you get that back in shirt sales, though, and, <laughs> and merchandise, Maury? I reckon you might. Yes. Yes, I mean, you remember the, the Galactica, David Beckham and all that sort of stuff and, mm. and, and what was uh, reported on his move to, to Real Madrid. So, yeah, that, that's a possibility that can recoup that. Any club that would sign Messi, I reckon it would launch that particular club into the stratosphere. Anyway, we'll see what uh, pans out with uh, Leo Messi. What is panning out is some very interesting moves for our overseas-based Aussies. Uh, Aaron Moy leaving Brighton and signing for Shanghai SIPG. I put on Twitter, boy, I didn't see that one coming. Did you? No, I didn't see it coming either. But gee, that Twitter, Maury, there's some sceptical people out there. Far out, man. Uh, the, the guy's got to look after himself. He, he wasn't yeah. actually a first 11 player at Brighton. And let's, Moy's a good player. But yep. his, his speed is not massive. Uh, the dynamic of the Premier League. Mate, the guy's looking mm-hmm. after himself and the family. It's a, it's a money move. Yeah. We all know it's a money move. Mate, fill your boots, mate, and that's it. Job done. Why mate, is everyone so hey, sceptical? And good luck with that, Spies. Like I said, I mean, the surprise was, Simon, that, um, that he didn't end up in Qatar because that's where the, the real interest was originally. Um, but obviously in the background, um, and very, very quietly, uh, Shanghai... SIPG were there. So, no, nah, I think it's a good, good move for, for Aaron Moy. And despite, as you touch on, mate, you've got to look after yourself at some stage of your career. And this is the stage that Aaron Moy believes that he needs to look after himself and his family. So, fair play to him. I, I, you know, I wish him all the best of luck in what's going to be a different league. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. But I think he can do well there. And he's certainly not going to be playing with rabbits, is he? He's uh, going to be a teammate of Hulk and Oscar, etc. Yep. Uh, the interesting one is that it might spell the end of uh, a spell in China for Odil Akhmadov. If A-League clubs are smart 
and I know this is uh, easy for me to say and spend other people's money, but they'll be going after a player like Akmadov, who is absolutely superb, but uh, looks as though he might be on the way out of Shanghai SIPG. Uh, Trent Sainsbury has signed for Kortrijk in uh, Belgium. Another move for Trent. He's, uh, he's mm-hmm. switched clubs quite a bit, hasn't he, over the last uh, couple of years? I, th- I think he's just trying to find a team that he can actually get regular game time. Uh, mm. Belgium, this this could be the one. Kortrijk's not a not a big side, uh, not a big spending team, so it could be the opportunity for him. Maury, we've spoken about it. Players make moves for money. He has made a few moves around for money. Now it's maybe money, yep. the, maybe it's got to the time now. Where he says, "I actually want to start playing again," and Kortrijk could be a perfect fit. Good opportunity for him, although he was an unused sub over the the weekend, and um, his team did get a, a one 0 win. So. Maybe that, that game time uh, still uh, might be a few weeks away. But mate, the important thing is, is this move does indicate that he's a footballer that wants to play football matches. He's made his money. He wants to perform. Okay, a club that's uh, owned by Vincent Tan, who's still in charge at Cardiff City in the Premier League as well. So it might be a possibility there for Trent uh, one day to go over to England or Wales, technically, uh, if he does well with uh, Cortrake. James Jago has gone to Greece to play for Aris Thessaloniki. Aris. Uh, Lyndon, Aris. Uh, Lyndon Dykes has joined Queen's Park Rangers and snubbed Australia for Scotland. Uh, quick thoughts on that one, Maureen? I actually think Australia snubbed... Uh... Lyndon Dykes in terms of not right now, but Lyndon Dykes didn't have opportunity in Australia. He went across to, to Scotland. He started at Queen's Park and, and he's worked his way through the ranks. He's done well. He's done well at Livingston and, and now he's got his move. Um, we have the opportunity in terms of national team coaches traveling overseas and um, the opportunity was always there to try and uh, get Lyndon Dykes on board, but Scotland have been proactive there and Again, I don't have any real issues with the process. Um, I wish Lyndon Dykes all the, all the very best. It looks as though uh, Tommy Rogic may be on his way to Qatar. That's not been confirmed uh, mm. as yet. Mustafa Amini was stranded in Turkey, uh, agreed to deal with a club there, but it's fallen through. Uh, good on his former club, Aarhus, in Denmark, saying he's yeah. welcome to go back there. That's uh, terrific to see. Uh, and Jackson Irvine is without a club at the moment after leaving Hull City. That's a strange one, isn't it? You'd hope he gets fixed up sooner rather than later. Yeah, I, I don't know what the scenario was there, but uh, I'm sure he will find a club. Some Maybe yeah. he had something waiting for something to happen. I, I don't know, but that was that was strange. At the moment, he's with this one, Swords. So yeah, <laughs> with with um, with Jackson. Look, there's been opportunity for Jackson, and there's been big money opportunities for Jackson in the Middle East and, and the likes. But um, fair play to the, the lad. I believe that he wants to stay in Europe, and and he still wants to to play uh, in the better the better leagues in Europe. So hopefully he can sort something out for him for himself there. And he's knocked back that opportunity for money though. Uh, similar moves for our female players as well. Uh, Matilda's continuing to flood uh, to England mm. in particular. Lana Kennedy has signed for Spurs. Emily Van Egmond has gone to West Ham United. Um, in terms of on-pitch performance, uh, congratulations to Ellie Carpenter, even though she didn't play, uh, but she was part of the Leon squad that uh, defeated Wolfsburg on Sunday night, Monday morning, Australian time in the Women's UEFA Champions League final. Terrific achievement. Only the fourth uh, Australian to lift uh, the Champions League, men or women. Spider is one of them, sat next to us on the couch. Uh, I don't know if you saw the Women's Community Shield. Sam Kerr, um, she had a bit of a rough time of things with Chelsea at the moment. She only scored once in seven games and 
uh, missed two or three very good opportunities in the win over Manchester City. And uh, the feeling is she's not quite uh, hit the groove as yet uh, in England. Any theories as to why? My personal opinion is it just takes time to actually adapt to the English game. Like Maury would know even better than me because he was in Scotland from a young age. It takes time. That, that, it's a different footballing. It's high tempo. It's very physical. And she wouldn't be used to that. So I think you've got to give them a little bit of time to, to adapt. Mm-hmm. And one thing that we know for sure is Sam Kerr has enormous star quality. Uh, and missing chances, I've got no issue with that. Um, she'll, she'll keep putting herself in positions to score goals. And once she's settled, um, she'll continue to do what, what we've seen her do so many times, and that's score goals and, and be a star player. See, I love how strikers are excused missing chances. They're, they're, yeah, they're I know. In the but... right position to score goals. And that, the, the reason why I say that is because I'm going to follow on to another yeah. topic here. Uh, the state media in China, as we move on to Asia, this week accusing referees of damaging the reputation of the Chinese Super League <laughs> because they're making mistakes. This is, this is a global problem, isn't it? This is not a refereeing problem. This is a global problem in football with officialdom. We excuse strikers for missing goals. Oh, she was in the right place. Her time will come. You know, she's just, mm. she's finding her feet, etc., etc. Referees make mistakes. We don't give them that leeway, do we? They're not finding no. their feet. They're not uh, going to be better next week. They're just crap. And it's the same nah. the world over. Yeah, but let me tell you. Is it like keepers, strikers. keepers. What about keepers? Us? They call us coach uh, killers. Right. Hey, uh, as soon as we I throw know. one in, we're coach killers. <laughs> as strikers, uh, as long as they're in the right right place, they'll get the opportunities. Oh, spare me, please. <laughs> spare me. I, I, I knew I'd get him first because I knew Spy was going to say straight away, mate, what about the keepers? What about the defenders, mate? We, like it says, we're, we're the same. But look, I mean, refereeing, it's a, it's a tough gig, isn't it? I mean... At the end of the day, you're out there, they're out there trying to give their best and, and, and make the right calls. We all make mistakes, um, some bigger than others. Uh, and like I said, unfortunately, with the, the huge amount of eyes that are on our sport, um, you know, it can be quite damaging to a career if you make a, a fatal mistake or you know, a really bad error at the highest level. It could, <laughs> it, it could be your last, your last um, game that you officiate, but that's our business. Well, China followed Saudi Arabia's lead last year in bringing in foreign referees. So distrusting were they of their own local <laughs> officials. This year, of course, due to COVID-19, yeah. they've got no such luxury. So they're stuck with the locals and they are not happy about it. So in my opinion, the sooner football as a game has a conversation with itself about referees and actually decides that it's us that's the problem, not the refs the better the game will yeah. be. Because statistics show they get most of the decisions right between 95 and 98%. But we never accept that. No. We always have a crack at the referees. This is cultural. It's systemic in our game. And we've got to fix it. Uh, last one on Asia and indeed in this section before we move on to footballers' lives. Uh, Angie's uh, struggles continue with Yokohama F. Marinos leading 3-1 in the 90th minute away to Vissel Kobe at the weekend. And they copped two on the jaw in, in stoppage time, uh, Spider, uh, to draw three yeah. apiece. <laughs> and Pete Klamoski, Shimizu, lost 5-0 to Kawasaki. I actually seen that. I couldn't believe it. But uh, again, we spoke about it, touched on it last week. No relegation. I, I watched Angie's team. They were 3-1 up. They didn't even look like they wanted to defend. It was incredible. They were still going for the fourth goal, Maury. So I think that's got something yeah. to do with the no relegation just keep playing and uh they played against each other last week so maybe that took the toll as well 
Yeah, yeah, and look, I mean, Pete Klamowski again is 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 looking to play a similar brand to Ange, and it's um, attack, attack, attack. But obviously, when you get beat five nil, uh, attack, attack, attack <laughs> didn't work. <laughs> uh, um, but 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 again, that's the kind of style of football that they want to play. They have that freedom, as you mentioned, uh, this year. Uh, a shout out maybe as well because was it uh, Thomas Deng that scored an absolute peach? Oh, worldy! At the, at the week uh, against uh, oh, Fort Rua Reds. Um, yep. Doesn't score many, but I'll tell you what, half volley, didn't he catch it sweet? And he, what about his what, when backflip? When he does score goals, they're normally the way he scores them. He can hit them from long range. I remember him scoring a couple for victory that way. He's got a very sweet right foot. You know, you know what the problem with that is? He's going to think he can do that every week. So now, he's going to, now the coach is going to start screaming at him in Japanese. What are you doing, son? You've hit one. That's, that's you for six months. Let it be. <laughs> Love it. All right. Thanks, guys. Uh, let's uh, close out that particular section. And we're going to head into our final uh, part of the podcast today. Footballers Lives. Footballers Lives. Yes, time now to welcome our special guest. And first of all, an apology. We did try to get Scott McDonald to come on this week, uh, but unfortunately, Scott isn't available today. However, we have a fantastic replacement. The man who has become known as the godfather of coaching in Australia. He started his playing career with Tottenham Hotspur all the way back in 1966, the year England won the World Cup and later emigrated down under in 1974 after injuries took their toll to play for South Melbourne. After starting his coaching career a year later as state director in Victoria, he acted as assistant to Jimmy Shoulder for the Socceroos, and later he oversaw the football program at the famed AIS in Canberra. He's worked in Malaysia, in Iceland, and you might remember had a year in charge at Perth Glory, as well as various roles with the FFA, where he now returns to help Trevor Morgan in his new role as technical director. It is a real pleasure to welcome Ron Smudger-Smith. How are you, Smudger? I'm good, Simon, and thank you. Pleasure to be here. Hi, Spider. How are you, Smudge? <laughs> Great to have you with us. Great to have you with us. Um, Ron, before we talk about coaching, uh, few will know about your playing career. Take us all yeah. the way back to those days in black and white where you were playing for Spurs. <laughs> were they your team as a kid? Oh, yeah. I mean, um, I definitely. Uh, I uh, I grew up with Spurs pitchers from as young as I can remember and uh, used to spend most of my school holidays watching them train and try and get the players to sign the photographs. So very much so. It was uh, indoctrination from a, a very early age. Come on, Smudge. Tell us honestly, there was no ticker tucker back then, was there? It was knock it in the channels, my son. <laughs> well, to be honest with you, mate, there was no other way of playing football because there wasn't any grass on the pitch. People <laughs> <laughs> forget about this, you see. They, they just think that back then the pitches were like today. Well, the only bit of grass by January that was on the football pitch at White Hart Lane was where the corner kick was taken in that little yeah. quadrant. The rest was just at night. The, the wetness used to shine. It used to look like it was being played on glass. So, Smudger, take us Definitely back to, in, in the 60s, who did you play with? Who were some of your peers at Tottenham at the time? Those would be the days of Bill Nicholson, is that, is that right? Oh, yeah. No, I was, um, I was part of, the only apprentices at Tottenham in those days were schoolboy internationals, okay? And there were a couple of lads who were like me, 
who were kind of like what you call the, the casual trainers. Um, Ray Bunkle was one. Ray Evans. Ray Bunkle um, finished up playing for London Schoolboys. Dave Mackay then later took him to Swindon. But Ray Evans actually played at right back. And he was probably the... Him and Steve Perriman were the only two local lads who ever played for Tottenham in the first team for probably out in a 10-year period. But Ray was there until Joe Kinnear kind of took his place. But Ray Evans was a lad from Edmonton, a local lad. Okay. Um, was it already in your head to become a coach when you emigrated to uh, Australia in the 70s? And I presume you must have come across the, the legendary Eric Worthington pretty early on as well. I did. Um, I actually got interested in coaching um, when I went to college to become a, a teacher. And part of our course was to do an FA coaching course. Plus, one of our lecturers was a staff coach with the FA. And he was the first one who ever really made me think about what I did on the pitch. I mean, at Tottenham, that we didn't get any coaching there. Uh, you judged how well you trained and played by how much abuse you got. <laughs> 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 uh, that was that was our kind of feedback mechanism we'd all talk about it after training and so on and say well I did all right tonight I only got you know two minutes of abuse was <laughs> <laughs> like smudge on that on that though but did um in terms of your earlier playing careers I know you had uh, some some injuries so was that also something that then um, I guess changed the direction you wanted to be involved in football and and therefore coaching became more important um not at the time Craig I I mean I knew I was not going to play professional football um but I I was really into teaching and coaching and I still love playing but I had terrible knees and I was having surgery and you know I had a, almost a two-year period out the game before I came to live in Australia. Um, but by then, I was, I was kind of hooked on the coaching bit. But mm. not to the exclusion. I wouldn't have given up playing football unless I had to. <laughs> so, Ron, um, you, you're best known, obviously, in Australia for your time at the AIS, where you helped develop many of the Socceroos that uh, became later a part of the golden generation. But why was that program so good? What, what was its secret? Well, at the time, it provided really talented young players with an opportunity, you know, to really develop to the best of their ability. The sky was the limit. And the other good thing about it was you're in an environment where it was okay to make mistakes as long as you learn from them. Nobody got abused, you know, for giving a goal away or things like that. In fact, we used to say to the boys, we know you're going to make mistakes doing what we're doing. You, everyone makes mistakes playing out from the back. And that was something that we, we were adamant that we had to introduce back in the, in the 80s um, to get players more comfortable on the ball. But you can't do that and then, you know, abuse somebody if, if, they, if they make mistakes and it costs you results and gains. Um, but they had to try and play under pressure. Smudge. Smudge. Oh, sorry, Spides, on you go. I'm going to put you on the spot right now. So we know that you've been a part of producing some of the greatest players that have played for Australia, but who was your most satisfying to see that you're helping develop to have a, have a career? Oh, tough question. Yeah, that is a tough one. Um, I'll tell you, if, okay, I'll, 
I'll put one on. I'll give you Frank Farina. Yep. And because Frankie was, he was a, you know, kid from Cairns. I saw him when I was still the coaching director in Queensland. He came down and played in a scores competition at Spencer Park. And I was looking for a striker. And I brought him down to be part of the coaching course. And I said to Jimmy Shoulder at the time, he just started as the head coach at the OS. I said, Jimmy, I've got two boys here. I said, one's at Brisbane City, and I won't say who that is. He was a good player. I said, and this other one, he's as green as grass and raw, but there's something about him that I like, and he's kicking coconuts around in Cairns. So if he goes back there, I said, that's the end of him. I said, you've got to take him to Canberra. And um, that was the start of it, and Jimmy agreed with me, and he said, well, the other boy in Brisbane's talented, but he's got opportunity there, so we'll give Frankie a chance. And... Frankie always had in his head from day one, yeah, I want to play overseas. And uh, everybody that saw Frankie play could see he was, he was a bit raw boned and everything else. And they talk about what he couldn't do rather than what he could do. And what he could do was score goals. So mm-hmm. he's one definitely that I would say greatest satisfaction in seeing him, you know, actually get a career. Brilliant. Smudge, you speak, you speak about, uh, even with Frank Farina there, about, he wanted to go and play overseas. So, I mean, look, a lot of the players, obviously, the, in terms of the players that you identified back in the day, you knew also not only their physical attributes, but there was that desire to want to, um, to go and conquer the world, to play at, play at that yeah. level. In, in regards to our talent identification now, Smudge, um, it, you know, it's probably, probably changed a little bit. We've, we speak a lot about the physical attributes and the capabilities to then play at the highest level. Yeah. How, how has talent identification changed now um, in Australia? Um, well, we're actually going back. Um, Clarkie, who, um, who, yeah. who works with Arnie, he's now profiling people and, and actually getting test data like we used to, you know, back in the you know, early 90s, late 80s, early mm-hmm. 90s. What has changed, Craig, is the actual... Um, young player coming through is a different beast altogether to when, say, you know, your generation, because they've grown up with iPads and everything else. So the physical literacy is nothing like it, what it used to be. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, we also had a spell, um, you know, for probably a good 10 years out of the last 15 to 18 years, where training um, strength and conditioning has been frowned upon. And yep. for me, that was the biggest backward step because, you know, your generation that came through, we were doing strength and conditioning work, first and foremost, to prevent injury. Because if you're going to train seven, eight to ten times a week, mm-hmm. your body's got to be able to sustain it. And so yep. there was this training process over 12 to 24 months so you could get the, the strength to increase the loading and everything else. Um, yep. But now I think we need it even more so because yeah. of the changes in society. Ron, yeah. well, we've done, reg- uh, done the regular testing. Sorry, Simon. We've done yes. the regular, te- regular testing as well, Smudge. Whereas, again, that doesn't happen here at, at club level. Uh, and we need to get back to uh, certainty. So I remember speaking to you, you know, players like uh, Lucas Neal, Joe Simonich, Kevin Musket. You knew that these players were going to have careers for themselves. Yes, well, what happened in the end, Craig, um, we started with a blank page and Harry Wardle uh, was the 
the lead strength and conditioning coach for all of the sports. But Harry had a background in football. So he, he was also um, familiar with what was required. And he always said, you, you don't want to finish up looking like uh, Charles Atlas or a bodybuilder, but you need your strength and you need your power. And so what we found was that through trying to prevent injury, we actually, through testing, found that the type of training we were doing made the quick players even quicker. Mm. You know, um, and it doesn't work on people with the wrong muscle fibre. So the slower ones who really need it more, they're only going to get a smaller percentage increment in their speed. But the quickies used to get really quick. Ron, um, just uh, yep. we move it into the present before we take in some Twitter questions. Uh, you're now back with the FFA uh, with Trevor Morgan, your, your technical consultant, and you're also part of the starting 11. Can you just briefly explain uh, basically what your brief is in, in both of those roles? Well, it's to, it's to give advice and assessment and to support Trev in a number of areas, particularly with regards to the player development and looking at our pathways and also um, coach education because they're all, they're all linked. Mm. You know, um, it's, uh, it's not something that you can isolate. One impacts on the other enormously. And, um, you know, that, that's really it. So because I've had a broad experience over quite a few decades, it's interesting to look back and say, well, that worked. You know, we did this at that stage and that was successful and now we don't do it. So could we bring those things back in somehow, but in the current environment? Um, okay, let's move on to some uh, questions from our, our listeners. Uh, this one from Nick Ogle uh, that came in via Facebook, which is our question of the week. Uh, congratulations, Nick. You win a $100 uh, voucher thanks to Outback Steakhouse. Uh, Nick says, uh, Ron, I've got a boy going through the SAP program at the moment. Everything I read overseas talks about how good futsal is for development, but it doesn't seem to have the same sort of support in Australia yet. Does Ron uh, or did Ron have the Institute players playing futsal or small-sided games during this time there? And what are his thoughts on futsal for player development? Um, I think it's, it's a good contributor, but I'd like it even more if it was played with a proper ball, like the outdoor game. <laughs> <laughs> um, because uh, developing touch is difficult with a ball that doesn't bounce very much. It also encourages some bad habits of using the sole of the foot. Um, so, but... It also does a lot of other good things about playing in the tight. And with regards to small-sided games, and Craig will tell you, um, when in our indoor hall, that used to be, <laughs> that used to be uh, like a breeding ground for everything. But playing in the tight, Rocky's elbows, smudge Rocky's elbows. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we used to love, we used to love it to rain. So I'd save the pitches and say, right, lads, we're in the indoor tonight, and that was it. <laughs> So uh, I'm a big fan of small-sided games, but also not, not exclusively, it has to be part of an overall training program. So yes, playing in the tight is a critical part of playing football and playing indoor football. I think everybody that's played the game just loves that. But you need to also have the expansive stuff outside. Smudge, tell me, uh, who was the young player that most impressed you this year in, in the A-League and who do you think can go on 
to have a career in Europe that's from a, what you've seen? That's a Twitter question, by the way, from Tom Simon's fan that Zelko has omitted to say, but the question is relevant. <laughs> um, I think the, the one who's um, impressed me most is, I can see his face and his name's just gone out of my head, but he's with Adelaide City. Um, United. Sorry, Adelaide United, uh, the midfield player. Riley McGree. Riley McGree, yeah, that's it. Yeah, he's um, outstanding. I think Riley has got the goods. Uh, yeah, if, same. If you go back to what Craig was talking about, about the lads that would succeed overseas. There's no doubt in my mind that you've got to be able to meet the physical demands of the game. In fact, I know that. And, but he's not only is he a lefty, which is a big bonus, um, yeah. but he's got a good appetite for the game as well. I, I like him in, um, in the way he plays the game. He's, he's got enthusiasm for it. You know, he, he's prepared to make runs and try and score goals and stuff like that. So, um, I think he can improve his positioning off the ball, um, but you know, if if I was if I was going to sign somebody, yeah, this, this I'd is a sign good, him. <laughs> this is a good one, uh, Ron from Nando Benning uh, again on Twitter. Does Ron agree with the current format of the national curriculum? Uh, and as a subsequent question, what age group is key for football development? This could take about uh, half an hour, I think. There's no short answer to this one. What I will say is this. I, I think you should forget about age, okay, because I've seen some nine-year-olds that would leave 12 and 13-year-olds for dead in football ability. And so what you need is you need to give people challenges that suit their ability and a quick example as soon as a player has got the ability to take his eyes off the ball and start scanning you can then start working with them about what they look for where they look and how they position themselves on the field which is really important because you spend most of the game without the ball and so that can happen at nine or it might happen at 14. That's a development thing, and it's got no relationship to age. Fascinating stuff. Um, this, this one from Matt Doolan, again via Twitter, Ron. Uh, A-League academies were supposed to take over from the AIS in helping develop our most talented young players. What can these academies learn and replicate from your old AIS setup, and what are the biggest challenges they face, in your opinion? Well, again, that's a, that's a, long <laughs> <question>. <laughs> that's a loaded, loaded, loaded question. Well, what I would say is this. It's a shame that we've had like the either or. I mean, the A-League academies have, have raised the standard of what's happening in club football with youth development. But how they run it and may be totally different to the, what we had at the AIS, yeah. where we had a specific age group. Um, and they were developed um, with a constant input. There, you know, it, it wasn't, um, and it was with the individual in mind rather than playing in a system. And I think that's probably where we've gone a bit the other way in, in recent times. We've become more about systems than we have about actually helping players become the best they can at a young age. Um, you sort of answered the final question that uh, I think we're going to ask there from John Zelenardo. If you were allowed to change one thing in Australian football, what, what would it be? Is that it? Um, 
Um, no, actually, I, I think, you know, the, the idea of having an AIS reintroduced, um, I don't think that will ever happen. But what I would like to see is that raising the standard at all club levels, A-League and MPL, um, but also going back to having at least at state level the best with the best and try and provide a top quality opportunity for maybe 16 to 20 kids in the state rather than trying to do that for 150. That would be uh, the one thing that I, I think we could get the maximum benefit out of. Smudge, uh, I just wanted to, to ask the question. Uh, I mean, look, we, we're speaking about obviously everything that you've done within the game and I was um, somebody that had the opportunity and huge benefit from your coaching uh, to give me an opportunity. What has been your best moment in football? My best moment in football? It might think... be a game, it might be a player. Like what, what has been your, your, your best moment to date where you look back and go, you know what, that's a real standout for me? Um, it was when I was coaching in Malaysia. I, I took a team from the bottom of the league and didn't sign any players. And we won the league the next year. Um, and got in the final of the Malaysia Cup. And, uh, you know, for me, that proved that it's not just about signing players. Um, you, can, you can actually work with people. And, and it wasn't by choice. <laughs> it was just that that was the, the environment I was in at the time. I wanted to sign players and the club said, no, you know, you've done such a good job with these. We're going to continue with these guys <laughs> next season. You're the and victim was, of your own success, Smudger. <laughs> well, I can remember saying, Alex Ferguson just won the league last year and he's already spent like 200 million quid. I said, we only... We only just managed to avoid relegation. <laughs> um, but anyway, so I think in terms of, you know, pure coaching, working with people, that was probably uh, the, the greatest highlight of my career. And it also stood me instead. I got job offers for the next 20 years because of that. And you're still robbing a living smudger. Good on you, buddy. Smudge. <laughs> <laughs> <That's laughs> <laughs> Tell me, you, you've been all over the world with football, mate. What What is the most impressive stadium that you've ever been been to? Because I think the viewers out there, they actually want to yeah. hear these kind of things. The most impressive football stadium that you've been to? Well, the night I walked into the new Munich Stadium with Frank Farina. Allianz. Before the yeah. Confeds Cup was going to be played. This was, um, I think, about six months earlier. There'd been one game played in there and Frankie and I went to see Bayern Munich play against Germany. And all of the teams that played for Germany that were in the Bayern team played for Bayern. And um, they, they played. And that stadium was just breathtaking yeah. to be in. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, from the moment, like we actually drove into the stadium. You can, up, see, it. You can see it off the motorway slide. just brilliant. Oh, yeah, and it was changing colour. They could change the colour. It was red and blue that night yeah. um, because of the buying colours. And we drove in and we actually parked outside the VIP area, which was like on level five or something like that. Um, and it was just a wonderful experience. And going in pre-game, it was full. The VIP area must have been about 70 metres across, yeah. you know. 
um, all looking out, a wonderful view. And um, there was a who's who of German football. I was in there. I was like gaping. <laughs> oh, there's Gerd Muller. It's, you know, <laughs> it was like a... <laughs> Get in a candy know, shop. Quite... Yeah. But, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I was, that was me. Yeah. There was all these players that I'd seen playing in World Cups. And, you know, you could go and shake hands with them. So... Um, no, that, but that is a stadium. That was fantastic. Ron, I don't know if you've been to the new White Hart Lane yet. Maybe that might uh, outdo uh, the Allianz Arena. I'm sure you're still cheering Spurs on, even though you're, you're 71 oh, yeah. years young. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's been great to have you on. We, we could talk for hours about all things coaching and football. Yeah. Uh, but we thank you so much for your time, Ron, especially at short notice. Cheers, Smudger. No problem. No, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, Thanks Smudge. Congratulations on your role. Thank Thanks you. for coming on. Thanks a lot, Craig. Okay, no worries. Bye. Bye. And that is us for another week on Shim Spider and so much more. Our thanks to Streamgate and to Outback and to you for listening. Our podcasts have now hit the magical five-figure mark and have been downloaded well over 10,500 times. We'll be back same time, same place next week. Until then, bye for now. Great stuff, guys. That was a top show. That was actually good. That was actually good. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.